Marketing can be an incredible force for good. It can also be complicated and confusing. I'm your host, Erica Mills Barnhart, and my goal with this podcast is to bring clarity to the marketing chaos for you. You'll learn inspiring yet practical ways to think about marketing differently so you can do marketing differently and get better results with less stress and more joy for you and your team. Motivation is for the mind and inspiration is for the heart. Marketing for good takes both. Welcome to a whole new way of thinking and doing marketing. Welcome to Marketing for Good. Okay, we're going to play a round of Name That Tune. I'm going to say, just say, not sing, because you don't want to hear me sing, the opening line to a very famous song, and then you can try to guess what it is. The opening line is, ground control to Major Tom. Now, the reason that I thought of that was because this year's theme for the 2020 MNR Benchmarks Report, which is about digital and online fundraising and marketing, is a space theme. This report, I'm so happy to have a chance to talk to Will Valverde about it. He's the Senior Creative Director at MNR and the lead writer for the report. And let me tell you, dude can write... I'm delighted to share this report with you. They do it every year and they have for the past 14 years. It is a shining example of what it can look like when you have a strong, clear brand personality and that comes through in the voice and the visuals and it all comes together. This sets a high bar for what marketing that can change the world can look like. Gets a little dorky in places because we're talking about data, but Will makes all of it so accessible. It's just, it's absolutely wonderful. He looks at what's behind some of the data and what might be beyond the data as well. So... I invite you to, of course, listen to all of it. If, you are, if you're listening to this and you're like, but I don't work for a nonprofit, listen anyway, at least to the first part. Will has some really interesting things to say about finding your voice as a writer and as a company or an organization that I think is valuable to any of you who are thinking about how to use language and words and messaging and marketing to change the world. Super interesting. All right. Did you guess what the song is? It is, of course, Space Oddity by David Bowie. Grand Control to Major Tom. I've been a David Bowie fan since grade eight. So I confess that I played that a little bit in my head when I saw this report. Go definitely take a look for yourself. Just be dazzled as I was. I, I hope you will be. You go to mrbenchmarks.com, mrbenchmarks.com, and you can take a look there. All right. Are you ready to dig in? Let's have at it. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So before we dive into the report findings, so today we're going to talk about the MNR benchmark study and the wonderful report that you pulled together for the 2021. And I know that listeners will be anxious to get there. However, <laughs> before we get there, I want to ask you, so did you write the report and do the date? Like, share with us about that. Benchmarks is a big group effort, and it has only gotten bigger and, and groupier as we have as we go year by year. But yes, I'm the lead writer of Benchmarks. I've been the lead writer for the last six or seven editions of it. This is our 14th Benchmark study, so yes, so <gasps> I, I have been leading the writing for the last several years. But the team that contributes sort of what we think is going to happen in the analysis, and, and definitely the data analysis, is something that like I don't have to do all the spreadsheety stuff. I get to just talk about what we think about it and, and what we think is important. 
So listeners, just in that response, I probably caught on to something, which you have a very lovely way with words, which I'm a deep appreciator of, like groupier and groupier. Like, that's funny, right? I just, I want to read a little excerpt just to give to give listeners like a flavor for it. For those of you who haven't read the report yet, one, totally encourage you to read it. It is one of the most engaging pieces of research every year and definitely this year. So let me just read it a bit so folks can get a sense for it. And this is from the intro. Uh, and early on. So it comes down to this. We can't chart a new path forward unless we understand our place in the universe. That's how we keep pushing boundaries and exploring new frontiers. That's how we endure darkness and glimpse the dawn. That's how we'll keep rising. Now, take your protein pills and put on your helmet. Here we go for launch. And then a little bit later, you say, some changes are easy to spot. They stand out bright and unexpected, like a supernova bursting against a placid black sky. Let's start there. Let's do start there. That is just straight up great writing. Thanks. I mean, like who doesn't want to, I want the new frontier. Let's do all that stuff. And then the, the bright supernova, you know, against the placid black sky. And so you have a writing background. I was, I was a creative writing major in college and I definitely come to this work primarily as a writer and I have a lot of experience of writing for nonprofits. Yeah. Okay. So you, you are a writer by nature. Okay. I always ask this of folks who are writers by training. Do you think that people are born good writers or can you become a great writer? I think that it takes a lot of work. I, I mean, I think sometimes I'll see an email that I wrote for a client along, you know, if I'm going back to look for a sample from even a couple of years ago, and it's like, oh, I would never do that now. I, I don't think that you, you stop improving, hopefully, if you're still working at it. But I, I think certainly some people have some natural ability, but it takes a lot of practice to, to get better at it. Yeah, sure. I agree with that. Uh, I mean, I get that question because I write a lot. And my answer is always like, I write a lot, therefore it improves. <laughs> that's, that's it. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. So this voice, this very unique voice and this like excellent standard of writing is something that I always admire in MNR against, you know, across all, like your blogs are always like that. So as an organization, as a company, do you have a defined brand personality? We do. We have some brand values. And, and when it comes to benchmarks, it is, I think, the purest expression of who we want to be in the world because we want to, we are really data driven as an organization. We believe that, that data can really guide strategy and should and needs to. So much of, a, of the work that we do is about direct response. It's about people clicking to give or signing a petition. And all of that really needs to be data driven, which is why benchmarks is what it is, which is the most comprehensive data set that we are able to compile each year. And we also know that data isn't enough. It has to mean something. It has to be interpreted. It has to be analyzed. And that it's not enough to actually motivate people to change their behavior. And one of the things that we know from the work that we do is that if you just tell people there are a million people who need help in place X, there's a big, big statistical problem. Global warming will kill us all. That's actually not enough to really get people to take action. Storytelling and making it be relevant, making it be authentic, making it be something that matters on a human level is, is a big part of it. And there are lots of ways of getting at that. There are lots of ways of sort of making that human connection. But one of the ways that we do it is through creative. And, and so that is what we try to really live. Benchmarks is, you know, I do a lot of writing every day for, for our clients. And I've written, gotten to write for all sorts of different nonprofits, all sorts of different voices, all sorts of different signers. I really love it. I like, I like to adopt somebody's voice. This is my chance to sound like the way that I want to sound and the way that I want MNR to sound. And so this is a chance for us to be our own client which is a really rare thing for a consultant to get to do. So yes, I think we, we really give it our all. And when it comes to benchmarks, we also want to make it be fresh and different every year. So 
So this, the segments that you read, I think if you have not seen the benchmarks uh, study this year, it is space-themed. So everything that we do from the, from the visuals to the graphics and the links we use is about space exploration and, and supernovas and all of that sort of stuff. That's stuff that I'm personally nerdy about, and so I really embraced it. But last year, it was something else. And the year before, was something else. We had one year that was music-themed. And so there were a lot of uh, music quotes and, and lyrics kind of quoted throughout as we, as we told our story. We did a version that was in 3D. And so everything was about the visuals were in three dimensions that came with a set of 3D glasses. It did? Um, this is a few years ago. And the copy reflected that by talking about depth, by talking about dimensionality, by talking about looking beyond the surface. So in a metaphorical sense, we addressed it. And then also, there was, in a more subtle sort of literal sense, there were triplets of D words spread throughout the copy. And so oh my that, I think, makes it more interesting for us to produce it. I hope that it makes it more, more interesting for people to read it. But I think what it also does is it gives us a structure. And so, you know, if you're, if you're sitting down to write a, a blank verse poem, that can feel really intimidating because you can do anything. If you're sitting down to write a sonnet, at least you know, here's the rhythm, here's the structure, and you can work within it. And I've always found that to be a lot easier. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, the triple Ds. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I don't think anybody noticed that I was doing that, but it, was, it gave me something to do with the copy and it sort of drove the process forward a little bit. It probably was not noticeable. I don't know that anybody ever mentioned it, but a lot of what we do is for ourselves. <laughs> so I think that's not inconsequential. In terms of like keeping your attention and interest as somebody who, you know, writes. And by the way, I'm not only talking, if you're a listener and you're like, well, but I don't produce the bloody, bloody, blah. Yeah, you write emails every day, probably, right? You're like, we, we are all in communication in that way. I mean, I do a lot of work with leaders around kind of finding their voice and, and how that, you know, personal brand and how that melts into organizational brand and all of those things. And it's like every time, once I'm like, just find your, like, let's work to find your voice because you will show up differently and more authentically and you'll be more interested in, in how you're communicating, how you're writing. You'll be able to stay interested in a different way. But, but if you are someone who's just producing the content, it gets boring. I mean, I've had, that, I've had that job and it's kind of relentless. I mean, it can be super fun. So I think if you can build in things like that, like go for it, right? And I think the audience feels it when you get bored. Exactly. I mean, a lot of what we do is not everything gets to be this big, fancy, elaborate production. A lot of what we do is routine. It is, here's a welcome message from, a, here, here's, a, here's another member to drive. Here's another December 31st, last chance to give kind of deadline message. But if you treat it like, oh, here's another one, yeah. and if you feel that way, if you're writing it, then it's going to come across and it won't be as effective. And so effective creative, I think a lot of it does rely on, I mean, if you don't care, it's really hard to make the audience care. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it helps to put a little bit of your heart into it. And it helps to, to do that, even if nobody notices, even if nobody notices the, the buried in-joke that is six paragraphs in and nobody will ever read it, that's fine. If nobody realizes that the, the 3D version of Benchmarks had triplets of D-words spread throughout, like that is okay it made me more excited and more engaged with the work while I was doing it. And hopefully that translates to the, the reader experience. I'm hundred percent going back and finding all those D's just letting you know, right here, right now. They are all available for download as is this year's study at mrbenchmarks.com. That's mrbenchmarks.com. Go check it out. <laughs> mrbenchmarks.com. Ah, okay. Let's turn our attention to the report itself this year's. Sure. I know listeners are anxious to hear about the findings. So wait, so we're recording this while sheltered in place. I can't wait for the day where I don't have to do that. Like, thing caveat but here we are so i know folks are are anxious to hear about you know so what does it mean in terms of covid 
and post-COVID, you know, because right now we are in this moment of like a little bit looking forward, really super weird, a lot of uncertainty. I want to get there. However, if you're open to it, actually what I'd like to do is walk through the, the key findings first and then sort of look at them in the context in which they were rolled out. I know that you were writing these as COVID was sort of unfolding, but the data itself was gathered prior Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the findings, and then we'll turn. Then we'll sort of have some time to talk about what they might mean for for our new world order, as it were. Um, sure. First, share with us who took the survey, and based on who took the survey, how generalizable is it to the to the entire sector and those sorts of things. So the the benchmarks data comes from uh, a pool of, per- of nonprofit participants. Anybody is welcome to sign up and join, and we encourage all nonprofits to participate because we think it is. Helpful for the nonprofits to actually, if you have confronted with your own data, I think it helps you to actually uh, have a better sense of it. But also for us to produce this report and have it be reliable and useful, we really need a big data set. The bigger, the better. And so this year we had 201 nonprofit participants. That's by far the biggest pool. I think our previous record was 150 some. So it's really great because it means that we have more data to share and we are less likely to be skewed by somebody's individual strategic choices or like sort of one group swaying it. So we have an over, and so we report on our data in a couple of ways. We report the overall average. So if we're talking about what's an average open rate for a fundraising email message, that's looking at every one of the 201 participants who submitted data. Then we break things down by sector. So we have, I think, nine of them this year. I think one of them is other, so that probably doesn't really count. But if you are an environmental nonprofit, you can look at that cohort of environmental groups. And if you are a public media group, you can look at those. We also break down by group size. So we have small, medium, and large groups. And that is, it's about how your revenue. So a small group is a nonprofit with annual online revenue under 500,000. Medium is from 500,000 to 3 million. And if you're raising more than $3 million online, we call you a large group. And that should help. And so we encourage people when you're looking at it, look at the overall number that matters. But oftentimes you'll see that your sector is really different. So it may be that in general, the numbers are moving in a certain direction. But when you look deeper, you say, oh, but for international nonprofits where I am, it's a really different experience because our fundraising results are so dependent on, is there a humanitarian crisis somewhere in the world? That's what drives giving. It's not about the electoral cycle, which may be more relevant to other types of groups. So it should be relevant to everybody, I think. We, we, we try to make it be that. Uh, but it's a, especially if you look at some of those, those breakdowns by sector and size, you can really find your peer groups in that way. Yeah, I find that so helpful. I know having done research for this project called, ended up being called thewordofire.com. Sorry, I have, to, I have to share with you. And for listeners, for what it's worth, if you hear squeals of laughter in the background, my daughter, who's almost 16, is a dancer, and she has not been able to see her dance mentors in however many months, and they just came to the door. And they are, so, they are distanced. They are physically distanced, but they have brought her her end-of-year present um, which they do every year. She's in a pre-professional program. So that that's what you're hearing in the background is a whole gob of joy. I have not heard it, but also if you hear smaller children screaming, that's my kids. They're five and seven. And they don't need a reason actually, or any particular joy to be loud. No. They'll just, they'll just do it on their own. We're all here. Yeah. Okay. Close the door. <laughs> and that was my 12 year old. Okay. We'll see if Jimmy wants to edit that out or not, but I just, I feel like we're low on joy, joy moments these days. And so when it happens, I just, I had to share. Plus, <laughs> I didn't know if you could hear it or not. Okay. 
I did some research a couple of years ago to figure out which specific words were being used. And really what I was looking for was overused by nonprofits, you know, building on research about brain novelty. And because when something, our brains love novelty, when they, you know, if, if something is no longer novel, then it's sort of, we don't pay attention. So that ended up, we ended up pulling every single word off 2,503 nonprofit websites that gave us a database of 11 million plus. And with that, we produced the tool, the wordofire.com. And so you can go and put in a word. And it's broken down by subsector. And so I, I want to note and appreciate that extra step that MNR takes. It is not inconsequential. It takes encoding. I blessedly did not have to do that. Nobody wants me touching spreadsheets. And it's such a gift in terms of how actionable the data is because when you know anytime it's aggregated, it really does lose that texture. So uh, just for listeners, that's like one. Yay, gives you much more information. And in in the report itself, uh, you can play with a lot of the charts. And so that's super fun as well. All right, the findings. So online giving has had a bit of a wild ride the past few years. You want to talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. So like I said, this is our 14th benchmark study. And this is a seventh-ish one that, that I've been the lead writer on. And over that time, we've gotten really used to seeing and reporting certain things. And so one of the baseline, most fundamental truths that used to be true was year over year, you could expect low double digit growth in online revenue. So we report like 12% growth year over year, one year, 14% the other year and 11%. But in this sort of narrow range, it just felt like, well, this is sort of the long term trajectory. We're getting bigger. Part of that is the economy growing. Part of it is, you know, online being a bigger part of the pie relative to some of the other channels over time. But it felt like that's that's where we're going to be, and that's the path upward. These programs continue to grow. And then in 2016, there was an election, which you may recall, and I recall. a really and, and a really big reaction to that election. And so what we saw was that's when this really extreme volatility began. So in 2017 we suddenly saw this really dramatic growth. So this like huge spike in revenue. And it was led by environmental groups, by LGBT rights groups, by uh, reproductive choice groups, by groups that were the resistance, essentially. Groups were either their, their, their causes felt like they were at risk or they were, their particular organizations were targeted. There was this outpouring of like, we need to save them, we need to fight for these causes we care about. But it wasn't only those groups. Sort of generally, we saw this really broad-based spike in giving as people just started throwing money at the causes they cared about in 2017. And then in 2018, we saw essentially flat growth. So that just all came to a screeching halt. And it was, and it was this sort of very worrying thing. We were so used to reporting double-digit growth. And then it was, it was 1% growth is what we reported last year from 2018. And it became, well, is our model broken? Are people just not going to give anymore? Can we, is, is growth finished? Is this sort of how we plateaued? And then a lot of sort of different explanations sort of floated for it. It was, there was a new tax law that made it less, that made people sort of less inclined to, to itemize their deductions, which might have an impact on giving the stock market in 2018, sort of like right around the middle of the month in December, right when the really big end of year fundraising, which is the most important couple of weeks for, for almost every nonprofit online, the stock market just tanked and that really, really hurt end of year giving. And then the broader context for us as we looked at it last year was that that all feels true. And it's probably, there's probably not one explanation. But what it really looked like was maybe what happened was we had essentially two years worth of growth in 2017. And we just couldn't keep building on that momentum. All the 2018 growth happened. It just happened a year early. And we sort of caught up to that. 
And so we went out on a limb, which we almost never do. Benchmarks is very much, it is our place to say the things that we know and the things that have happened. It is not a place where we like to make speculations and predictions of what will happen. But we went out on a limb, we said, if this is all true, if our interpretation of this data is correct, then what we expect to happen next year is 2019 will report a return to that long-term path of low double-digit growth. And that's what we saw. We saw a 10% increase year over year from 2018 to 2019, kind of back on track. So if you look, if you blur the numbers, if you look at a five or 10 year curve, it looks pretty smooth. It's only if you look year by year that it looks really spiky. But if you smooth that out, it feels like we're back on track. Oh, that's interesting. Which is, gives me hope. As we were coming, as we were writing this, uh, this was in February, we were writing this data, is really when the COVID situation started to, to turn dire. And so the data that we have is 2019 data. It is January through December and looking back before that. So it all predates the current crisis that we're in, which I think offers sort of a really interesting snapshot of like, Very this is what it was like before. And so that prediction, like, well, like at first it was like, oh, great, we're right back on track. When we first saw that data, I was like, oh, we can just say we're back to normal now. That's very nice. And, you know, barring another election. And clearly that's not the case. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see a lot of volatility in really unpredictable ways. We're already seeing it. There are going to be some nonprofits that come that are right now in this moment seeing a big surge in generosity because especially those that are on the front lines of dealing with the COVID crisis and sort of the impact it's having on communities. Those groups are probably going to see maybe a really amazing amount of growth that also can't be replicated. Other groups are really suffering. And I think in particular about groups that rely on in-person events, especially those that rely on ticket sales. So if you're a museum right now, you're in trouble. You know, you're, you're really, or if you have a big part of your budget is an annual gala that you can't hold anymore, you've got a lot to figure out. And so the way that's all going to shake out, I think is there's going to be a really tough time this year. It still gives me, I think, some sense of perspective and a little bit of hope to think, yes, this year was going to be wild for a lot of groups and, and it's going to be really difficult for a lot of nonprofits. But I still expect that over time, we will return to that long-term growth trajectory because it is because nonprofits are building their programs bigger. They are doing a better job. The donors do want to be giving online and people are not going to stop caring about the causes that they care about and stop supporting them. So it's going to be a really difficult time, or in some cases, maybe a really thriving time, at least in terms of revenue, as challenging as everything is. But I do think that that, that long-term growth is still going to be there. It's just I, I can't. I can't wait to get all this data. My hands on all this data from this year, next year, and uh, <laughs> totally. and be looking through it again Very and trying to parse through what it's going to be. It's going to be really complicated. So I teach at the University of Washington, and one of the ways to indicate this is not unique to UW, but is happening all over the place, is to have an asterisk on students' uh, transcripts as a reminder, because you know, it, it, like right now, it's all we can think about. And in five years, when somebody's looking at the transcript, they may actually forget, and you know, there could be volatility. So. I feel like the asterisk is going to make a big, um, it's going to have a moment. <laughs> so I'm curious if, if it's going to have a moment for the benchmark. Yeah, I mean, we try to, uh, we try, it's, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, with the continuity from having done this for so many years, I think really helps because we have that context. So when something is, is different and weird, we can be like, oh, that actually stands out from the historical trends. We're not comparing every year. We have a different pool of participants. So we never like line up, like, right, what did we say right. last year? What did we say this year? because it's not really comparable data-wise, but the experience and sort of what matters, that's what we try to get through in our findings. We try to sort of identify, like, why is it that this is the way uh -huh. it is so that we have that context yeah, for the future. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I went through the report, and there's one, two, three, four, five different sort of areas that you talk about. Facebook, web traffic and devices, text messaging, social media, digital ads. 
I want to walk through them. I want to say the one thing that jumped out most for me from each of those and see if you would have a counter to what you think folks should be paying attention to. Okay. Sure. All right. So for Facebook, um, in 2019, giving on Facebook accounted for more than 3.5% of all online nonprofit revenue. For the health sector, Facebook generated nearly 10 cents of every dollar raised online. Oh, that was striking. Yeah. No, it's a big deal. I think this is, last year was our first time reporting on Facebook fundraisers. And we, we call it Facebook revenue, the vast, it's like 97% of Facebook revenue is actually fundraisers. So that's the peer-to-peer -to -peer tool. So that's people right. saying, it's yeah. my birthday. Okay. Yeah. Please support this cause I care about. And yeah, it's really, I mean, 3.5% feels like, well, that's not going to make or break our budget. 10% might. And, and three, five, three and a half percent, if you think about the, who those audiences are and what that revenue is, in a lot of cases, those are not really supporters of your organization or your cause necessarily. They are people whose friend is having a birthday. And so whatever, it is, whatever they put up there, I'm going to support it. In a lot of cases, they are somebody who maybe is a monthly donor to your organization or who might give otherwise, but they're going to make an additional gift over and above their previous giving level because they're like, well, I'm already a monthly donor to whatever organization, but my friend's having a birthday. And like, well, sure, I'll, th I'll throw another gift of $30 on top of that. And so it is, in a sense, it's sort of extra revenue. I, I think it, it, is, it is revenue that would otherwise be really hard to acquire through normal channels. And so I think that's where a lot of the potential is. And when you look at health groups, yeah, if it's 10% if it's of their entire online revenue is, is Facebook fundraisers, that's pretty huge. Why do you think that is? Why, why is it bigger for health groups? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think a couple of things. I think part of it is that Facebook fundraisers work best when they are personal. And so when somebody is saying, it's my birthday, or it is, it, it is Giving Tuesday, and I'm gonna, I, I, want, I want to do a Facebook fundraiser, who should I do it for? A lot of people have a deeply personal connection to health nonprofits. So you might be a survivor, you might be doing it in honor of a parent who passed away from cancer, whatever it might be, that personal connection is going to make it be sort of the first place that you look. Got it. That's part of it. I think part of it is also that these health nonprofits have a long history of peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. So walkathons have been a thing for health nonprofits forever. They, they have this sort of baked-in peer model, which means that they're maybe more effective at promoting it. I mean, it's maybe a more natural sort of choice for, a, for somebody setting up a fundraiser. So that history, I think, really helps them as well. So I think it's more than one thing, but I think it's that interplay of like what feels personal and, and authentic for the donor. And then also where's sort of the natural advantage that, that that sector has in terms of their different fundraising models. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I uh, actually ran my first marathon um, with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society with team and training. Yeah, because uh, my mom had at the time. She's fine now, by the way. But my mom had cancer. She had stage four lim uh, lymphoma, so non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, yeah. Okay, so that's Facebook. Web traffic and devices. Half of all nonprofit website visits come from users on mobile devices. Yeah. Holy cannoli. We've we've hit that tipping point. Yeah. Right. Fifty percent. So. What says you about that? What does that mean? I mean, we were waiting for it. We were waiting for, like, this is the, the, the direction we've been in. This is not for nonprofits only. This is sort of where our society is going and how technology use is, is changing. This is one of my favorite charts out of all of, the, all of the charts that we have in the study. Half of all traffic is now coming from users on mobile devices as opposed to their laptop. That's like 40%, I think, is now desktop devices, 41%. And there's a little bit of tablet, but the tablet is not interesting. We'll set that aside. Half of all traffic is coming from mobile users, but a third of transactions, so actual donations, are coming from mobile users, oh. and a quarter of the revenue is coming from mobile users. 
Uh, that's why I said it sounds made up because it's so clean. It's half a third and a quarter. And so what that means is somebody who visits your site on a desktop device is more likely to give than somebody who visits using a mobile device. And when they make a gift, they're going to give a higher average gift if they're on a desktop device. And so what we see is that the traffic share and the, and the transaction share and the revenue share is all, mobile is gaining on all of that. They're, it's getting closer to parity in terms of uh, conversion rates and average gift size. But it is still the case that a mobile user isn't worth as much on average, but a bigger share of our audience is composed of those mobile users. And so there's a lot to figure out there and a lot that we need to be doing as nonprofits trying to make the most of each visit, trying to try to increase our revenue to adapt to that reality because we're not going to go back. People are not going to put down their cell phones. There are, there, this no, is not going to happen. <laughs> but that has huge ramifications in terms of nonprofits thinking about their websites and making them mobile friendly and responsiveness and all that. It does. And I think most nonprofits, I, I think we've gotten the message. I think most nonprofits have now done at least the basic thing of saying, our website needs to load quickly. It needs to look okay. You can't just have everything sort of breaking if you're on a phone. And we, we have mobile versions of our sites for the most part, in particular for larger nonprofits, but we're mostly there. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't know that I, I wish I felt that to be true for the smaller ones, but I think they're still struggling. And it bums me out because it it feels like yet another way where if you're a smaller nonprofit, you're, you're going to fall further and further behind. It's hard. There are tools out there, but yes, it's, yeah. it's, we're seeing a lot more doing that. But now what, what we're seeing the large nonprofit, if you've got that figured out, if you've got the sort of mobile optimization side figured out, then there are still, I think, two big questions that are being sorted out and we're finding some, some changes happening. So one is about content. What usually happens with sort of the mobile version of a site is it's the same content that is just sort of rearranged and restructured so that it loads properly on a phone. Maybe that's the best way. But it may actually be that we need to be reassessing the actual content that we are displaying on our websites, even in our email, so that there's actually a version that is making the case in a different way, rather than just saying, let's make sure the columns shrink so they fit on a smaller screen. So there's a content question. And then there's a whole tech question of, are you using PayPal? Do you have Apple Pay set up? These kinds of things are, as they get adopted, make it easier to actually complete that gift on mobile, even if Ask is just as powerful but you don't want to be typing in the little form with, on, with your thumbs on the bus, having access to those other platforms can really sort of make that process easier. So I think we're, that's, that's sort of the next phase, the current phase of this, and for some groups, the next phase. Yeah, that, the difference between the acquisition channel and the transaction channel, yeah. um, being clear about those and optimizing for both, very important. Okay, text messaging. This is what stood out to me, that nonprofit text messaging audiences grew by 26% in 2019 at a time when Facebook audiences grew by just 4% and email list sizes declined by 2%. Yeah. So this is, I think the scale really matters here. So the growth is definitely there for text messaging. Email list sizes declining by 2% sounds like a bad thing, but I think it's actually in many cases a reflection of nonprofits taking list hygiene more seriously. Yeah, and actually, yeah, So it's yeah. not that they're not acquiring names, it's they're doing a better job of actually eliminating the parts of their list that are not performing. Somebody who, hasn't, who has a Hotmail address that hasn't opened an email in seven years, like just actually cutting AOL. them off is... <laughs> All the AOL addresses. Like. Yeah, all of those ones. Some of them are active and that's great. And no shame if you're somebody who has hung on to your AOL address the whole time, mom, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> it's actually fine. <laughs> but what, what you see is that it is, it's better for, your, for your, your sender reputation. So you're going to land in the spam box a lot less often if you are having good list hygiene. It also makes your testing much more effective because if you are testing two different subject lines or two different approaches, whatever A-B test you're running, 
if you have this massive dead weight that is not responsive to either one, it makes differences really hard to see because everything gets drowned out by the non-responsiveness. So that list declining, we saw that at the same time as response rates slightly rose. And I think what we're doing is we're actually doing a better job of cleaning up our list and sending relevant messages to people. Anyway, that's a whole digression about list size. The growth in nonprofit text sizes, yeah, 26% is great. The average nonprofit had 72 mobile subscribers for every thousand email addresses they have. So the scale of those is really vastly. While it's really like interesting to be a part of our stream to, to supporters, it's really small. And, and we don't really know how the performance is going to change as it grows. Are you seeing, or, and did the data say anything about differences in like, you know, whatever the equivalent is to open or responsiveness to text versus email? Text to me is so much more personal and intimate. It is. So it's the number that I care about most is response rate. So that's like the percentage of people who receive a message in whatever channel and actually do the thing we want them to do, whether it's signing a pledge right, or, right. or yelling at Congress or you're giving a, a donation. And because of the way these platforms are connected or not connected, we don't have response rate data for text messaging. What we have is click-through rate data. So that is how many people receive a message and then click through to the, to the landing page. And maybe they're going to complete that gift, maybe they won't. And so the click-through data is, I think, really promising from the text perspective. It is an order of magnitude higher for fundraising. So a fundraising message uh, via email, you're going to get like, uh, I'm sorry, no, I have that wrong. That's for, that's for advocacy. But it's about 10 times higher for fundraising and about five times higher for advocacy. Wow. The click-through rate you're getting for text messaging relative to email. So much, much higher. The audience is much smaller, so you're not seeing that's not driving all the revenue. But that's really promising. It, I am skeptical that that's going to hold up over time, um, just because right now people, it's not unusual to be on 15 or 20 or 30 different nonprofit email lists. And mm -hmm. it's pretty unusual to be on that many text messaging lists. The volume that we're seeing is much, much higher. It is, it is more novel to be getting a text message. It is more personal. So I think there's promise there. Email is also supposed to be personal. It, it used to be. It should it be. I think we were doing well. It's still personal uh, to the reader. And, and we should be making it as personal as we can. Okay, well, to be continued on what happens with text messaging, and um, it is novel, so that makes sense to me. Th that's also one that I think listeners should look at by subsector, because there are pretty keen differences there. And it's, you know, it may also be that it has different uses. So I think yeah. one of the things that we're also seeing with texting is there's also peer-to-peer -peer texting, which is so things like hustle and get through these channels where organizers can use them to start these one-on-one -on -one conversations, yeah, which yeah. is something that is not really done it's at any sort of scale in, in, in certainly not through, through email in social media sometimes you can do the sort of the chat windows and that sort of support but i think that has a lot of possibility and a lot of potential there so we're we've already seen it a bunch i expect to see a lot of it this election cycle mm -hmm. as candidates and campaigns and nonprofits use that peer-to-peer -peer model to especially as we're still separated from each other to say right. if you're a volunteer you can't go knock doors but you can do a you can do a canvassing shift on your phone and you can be texting people to make sure they go register or get to vote, do all those sorts of things. So I think the potential for that peer-to-peer -peer text messaging, I think, is really high. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Interesting. Okay. Social media. Here's what jumped out at me. Instagram was the fastest growing of the three social media platforms uh, for nonprofits with a 42% increase in the number of followers. So that's a pretty big increase. Yeah, I think that this is the, the trend we've seen over the last several years, which is social media is growing. All the channels are, are typically growing. The younger channels grow faster. And so Facebook is, is now growing at 4% a year. It's more mature, both in terms of its user base, 
but also in terms of sort of nonprofit participation in that space. Most nonprofits have had now a Facebook page for a decade or more. Twitter has now been a thing for nonprofits for, for a great many years. So while those audiences are growing, there's just, they're closer to their ceiling. If there's, a, there's not really a ceiling in general, it's always new users, but they're closer sort of maxing out sort of who is the potential audience. For a channel like Instagram, it's still relatively new. A lot of nonprofits have only had their Instagram live for a year or two or less. And so we're going to see faster growth there as, as those audiences mature. And then that's going to be quickly followed by like, are you on TikTok? On and TikTok, what are you doing yeah. with that? Is that going to be the yeah. next thing? So we right now just report on those three, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. But we change our data set every year. And if it looks like TikTok is becoming an important one or one of the other new ones, we'll, we'll include those ones as well. Yeah. Okay. And this is my, I have to say, because I was worried that folks will hear that and, you know, be like, then we have to be on Instagram. Not necessarily. This is where you have to look at who your audience is and whether or not they're on Instagram. So don't hear that as like, we have to be there. We have to be on all the channels. Uh, most nonprofits don't have the bandwidth to be on all the channels and, or at least not do it well. So just don't rush out and start your Instagram account just yet. Digital ads, nonprofit investment in digital ads increased by 17% in 2019. Yeah, it continues to grow. It's an important piece of the puzzle, I think, for a lot of nonprofits. For, for both lead acquisition, you know, gen, get, getting new names on their email address or, or on their email list or on their text messaging list, as well as just direct donor acquisition and, and retargeting, getting people to make a second gift to become sustainers, all the different things that we're trying to do. It is, it's a crowded space. Being able to pay for placement can really, really boost your, your efforts. And and just to be clear, it, digital ads much more for acquisition and really not a place for retention and donor, donor stewardship based on what you're seeing with the data? Well, I, I think it depends on what we mean by retention and donor stewardship. So like, yes, it is. I mean, it can be useful for that. And what we really see is really different breakdowns in the uses of advertising based on nonprofit size. So this is one where I feel like the sector breakdowns are actually a little bit less useful than the size breakdowns because we see big nonprofits with, with significant online revenue behaving really differently than small nonprofits that don't have these big budgets. And okay. so that makes it's a sense. place where, so for example, that, that change in investment for large nonprofits, it, investment in, in digital ads grew by about a third. It's like 30-some 30, 30 percent growth. Small nonprofits actually on average pulled back by about 20-some percent in, in the amount of, that they were spending. And all of these are individual decisions that are going to be sort of have their individual reasons. Some of them are budgetary changes. Some of them are, we tried it for a year and it sort of didn't, we didn't, couldn't make it work. So we're going to, we're going to put that money somewhere else. All sorts of different reasons. But, but those really divergent trend lines, I think are important and worth, and worth looking at. It's also when we look at sort of what nonprofits are spending, sort of where, where they're directing it, it really depends. And so for a large nonprofit, they're spending 44% of their budget on direct fundraising. So that is some of that's acquisition. A lot of that is retargeting. So, and retargeting is whether somebody landed on your donation page, but didn't complete the gift. So you kind of follow them around the internet until they complete the gift. That's one method. But retargeting might also mean we have an audience that are on our email list that we, have, we know have taken action on this issue. We are going to upload that as our audience and target them on social media as a particular audience. It's also that. So it's retargeting based on some behavior. And so I think in that sense, it can be retention. It can uh -huh. be about donor okay. stewardship. It can be a get that repeat gift. Creepy. But anyway, so, so All that stuff gets the, super creepy in my mind. Like It does. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a lot of... <laughs> you have to do it with a pure heart and then it's okay. I think that's, Aww, I think that's I the difference. That but for small nonprofits, only 20% of their budget is about direct fundraising. They're spending almost half of their revenue of their budgets on digital ads okay. on branding and awareness and education. So just name recognition or talking about their issue 
it's a really different mix of uh, a really big, different mix of goals for a small nonprofit compared to a big nonprofit. Yeah. Okay. That all that all rings true for sure. Okay. So now we've made it through the sort of key findings. Again, go read the report. One to just get a dose of like fabulous writing, total joy bomb in that department. And then also just the data so good and so interesting. And this, you know, there's a lot more where that came from. What does it all mean? Like as nonprofits hear all this and are looking to a post-COVID world, not only what does it mean for nonprofits, what, what does it mean for donors and for folks uh, who, who are thinking about supporting the sector? I think it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> My answer is always yep. it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, so I think that as we were putting this together, so the timeline here was we gather all this, all this data in January for the previous year. And then in February, we, we, we have all the data together. We start writing our analysis. And like, we were like kind of halfway through that process when it became really clear that this pandemic was going to be really different than other crises that come before. And this was not going to be something that lasted a week or two and then we all moved on. It was going to be with us for a while. And so it did become this moment of like, well, what can we even say about this that is still going to mean anything six months from now? And now we are a few months later. And I think that some of the things that have felt important in the past still feel true now. And I think they can still guide us. So, and some of the things we've already been talking about. So talking about this, the increase in, in the investment in digital ads, that's not something that has to be affected by by COVID. In fact, in some ways, it is it has created new opportunities for some nonprofits because as corporations have pulled back on their advertising spending, which we have seen, then that creates that that actually lowers costs for nonprofits, and so there's actually a little more room. There's more inventory, and so that has actually been sort of a, a weird, unexpected uh, effect of COVID. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that actually. There are going to be all these things, but the fact that we need to reach our donors like hasn't changed, and regardless of what your cause is, it hasn't stopped mattering. Even if you are a, a cultural institution, you're a symphony, and you are not actually allowed to perform right now, the nature of who you are and the value produced in the world hasn't actually changed, and we still need to communicate that. And so I think one of the things that I want people to do is still do what they were doing, like still do your job, still talk about your cause, whatever it is, and talk about why it matters. This is a time when I think a lot of transparency is really necessary. So if you're a cause that has seen revenues decline by 50% because you, or, or you had to cancel one of your major fundraising events, be honest about that with your supporters. Talk about what it's going to impact and how it's going to change the way you fulfill your mission moving forward. I think this is a time for honesty and transparency. It's not a time to pull back. And so I think a lot of times, especially right away, there's this instinct of being like, well, this crisis isn't about us, so we need to wait our turn. And I don't think that that serves nonprofits really well. And I don't think that it actually serves donors particularly well either. There, I think certainly we don't want to say there was an earthquake yesterday. Now let's talk about our good news. Like that's not quite the thing. You know, there's, I mean, right now what's happening in Minneapolis is, is painful for a lot of, of people. And so acting like that's not happening or like it's about you when it's not, I think is inappropriate and, and wrong and also just not going to work. But that doesn't mean that because there's a pandemic that your cause has stopped mattering or that your donors don't want to hear from you. You may need to change what you are saying. And I think you should always acknowledge the reality of what people are going through because you just, because it's the right thing to do, but also because your donors are humans. They are feeling things. Thank you. You're also a human. Yes. I, I'm assuming that, that most of your listeners are human beings. Yeah, pretty sure. Last and time I you can talk about your own lived human experience and be authentic about it. And when you do that, it will make a difference. You may not see the same response to a fundraising email right now that you might normally see because if you're not a cause that is sort of directly addressing the current crisis, 
but it does mean, but you, but you will still be in people's hearts and their minds and they will come back to you. They will stay with you. And you'll be surprised, I think, at how many of them are willing to, to support you if you can make them know that they matter and that your cause still matters. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate the point about we're all humans and, and that's more important than ever, really. I, I, it concerns me. I totally get it. And, and it concerns me. It feels like a lot of nonprofits are waiting for permission to advocate for their mission. And, you know, if, if you go dark, folks are going to think you've gone dark. <laughs> um, it gives yeah. a really uh, possibly not accurate picture of what's happening for you. So I, I definitely, you know, hear from a lot of organizations that are like, well, it feels weird and I feel weird. And I'm like, cause it's weird. It's all weird. And so that's, you know, start from that place of empathy and acknowledging what's happening in the world. And if your work was important before it's important now, and it's going to be important into the future. And I think it's also, I think one of the things that's hardest is it feels like there's no space for joy or there's no space for, for yeah. positive feelings in a, in a moment like this. And mm-hmm. that is maybe appropriate when there's an immediate tragedy. So when there is a tsunami, talking about the joy you bring to the world, I think is inappropriate and, and, and bad in all sorts of ways. But the COVID pandemic is a moment that is extending in all of our lives and touching all of us for months and months and months in, a, in all these different ways. And so if you are a group where what you do is you is if you're an arts organization and what you do is is expression saying now is not the time for us to express ourselves i think is is not right and you can't you can't wait forever you actually you have you are performing a valuable service by bringing that human expression into the world and by fighting for the causes that you fight for whatever it is people need that too they need to feel like they can do something that makes a difference i think that's you know early on in the when this pandemic happened and things were starting to shut down and it wasn't really clear what you were allowed to go do i went and i donated blood because i just like was scheduled to do that and almost nothing over the last several months has made me feel better than that even though that is like unhelpful in any sort of scale it was like oh i can do one thing oh that's such a great example Will. and i think anytime you can get somebody to make a donation to your cause and they feel like they're making a difference about something in the world, it, it, it's empowering. Mm. It feels like you are in control, like you are doing something good and like you're making a choice. And it releases happy chemicals in their brains. That's a thing, yeah. That's there's a, there's thing. a biological response mm. and there's sort of, it can feel good. And so I think that's, you know, I don't think we've seen a decline in people setting up Facebook fundraisers. The balance of which organizations are being the beneficiary of those might have changed. Yeah. But, you know, on my feed, anybody who's having a birthday is still like, well, now I'm, I'm, I'm raising money for this thing. And it feels good to give to it. I think people should keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned joy and, uh, and some other things and inspiration and arts organizations. I ask every guest this at the end of the interview. So I learned uh, somewhat recently that the, if you look at where the word inspiration came from, it actually means to breathe in. And then motivation, of course, means to take action. So you breathe out. So you need both in balance. And so my question for you is right now, what inspires you and what motivates you to keep doing this work? Oh man, that's like heavy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's only heavy if you make it heavy, yeah, Will. <laughs> uh, I am inspired... I mean, always, this is like so pandering, but like by my clients, honestly, I feel so lucky. I, I'm a consultant, which means that I get to work for every cause that I care about at some time or another. I am not limited to just the one cause that, I, that I'm putting in day in, day out with. And, and I, you know, I have not seen, for the wide variety of causes we work with, anybody who is not still showing up. And I think people are reaching out to each other. They are they're doing the work. They are having a really hard time in many cases. And, and they're still doing it. And so it feels to me as a 
as a privileged person. I, in, in so many ways, including the fact that I was already working from home. I've been a remote worker for eight years. So I didn't have to set up a home office and scramble to figure out Zoom. Like even just like that, like if, if all these people who are having such a hard time are still showing up and doing the work, it's, it feels easy to do it, it, no matter how hard it is. And so I think that's, that's my motivation or my inspiration. So clients, if you're listening, you're my inspiration. That is like the panderiest thing that I could possibly say, but like, there it is. That's, that's the truth. <laughs> what motivates you? Oh, I don't know. It's, wait, what's the difference? My motivation? Inspiration is breath in. Okay. It gives you energy and the motivation is kind of like what, what's the impetus to like keep going? Um, sheer terror, I think, and despair. <laughs> I think is my main motivator. Like I, <laughs> largely okay, we're going by, there at the uh, end of the day. Okay. Yeah. By the, uh, the flip side of everybody showing up and doing the work is that the work needs to be done. And, and, you know, looking around the world already, you know, in general, and pick, pick your, your, your crisis that has been building for, for decades and centuries or sort of the current political climate, or then, you know, obviously now we have a pandemic and then like right now, I don't know when this is actually going to get posted, but like right now there's like unrest in Minneapolis because of, of the, the police violence. And like those things aren't going away <laughs> and they're not going to go away on their own and nothing has ever gotten better by people either ignoring it or, or, or just only hoping without doing. And so I, I don't know, I guess it's, yeah, it's like constant existential dread and despair is what motivates me. So there you go. I'm inspired in a pandery way and I'm also filled with despair and horror. It's a good thing you have those clients of yours, Wilkes, because otherwise I feel like it'd be a lot of, of existential negativity. Yeah. Anyway, go look at benchmarks. It's super fun, everybody. There are jokes about space. There are. I mean, there's jokes throughout this report. I, I mean, I don't want to leave that, but without saying I feel that and there's a lot in this moment that is heavy. And it's, uh, you know, I'm a very privileged, educated white woman. And it's so it's by definition less heavy for me and heavier for our friends, colleagues and people of color. So before we move on, whenever this is, whenever this airs, that's still going to be the case. I appreciate MNR, uh, as I've said, on a, a number of levels. One of them is, is your constant. There's always a call to action, a call to be better and do more just in the most inviting of ways, however. So, Will, I, I thank you for this report. It has been so fun. As a fan of the report, it's been really fun to hear from you about it. Thanks for coming and sharing all the, all the data goodness and dorkiness with, with listeners. Listeners, again, if you want to dig in more, go to mrbenchmarks.com. That is mrbenchmarks.com. I feel like that's Will keeping himself entertained right there. A little bit. I mean, M and R. Anyway. MrBenchmarks.com. And as always, um, if you want to keep talking about this, if you have more questions about it, join me in the Marketing for Good Facebook group and we'll keep talking about how marketing can change the world. Do good, be well, and I will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Marketing for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about Claxon University, how to make more impact in and for your organization, or hiring me to speak or coach, go to klaxonmarketing.com or reach out at info at klaxonmarketing.com. Again, thanks for listening and thanks for making our world a better place.